This is an e-learning course brought to you by Contemplative Light. We are a community of spiritual teachers and writers, graciously offering our insight, experience, and most importantly, our love. We hope you enjoy your course. So now we come to St. Bonaventure, or Good Fortune, Buenaventura. And he was uh, another 13th century figure, so he's living during this time of wealth, uh, consolidation, urbanization that we've discussed in the some of the other mystics. And not a lot's known about his early life. He's born in the early 13th century in Tuscany as Giovanni di Fidanza. Um, that already, to me, it's always interesting to get the original name. In this figure, we, we, we think of someone as Saint Bonaventure that even phonetically already has a certain, places him within, within a certain framework that exists for us in a lineage of sainthood and within a particular sort of a Catholic context. We think of some of the other saints, Saint Francis and, and stretching back to Saint Paul and so on. But to get that original human connection through the, the his original name, Giovanni di Fidanza, that kind of subtly subverts our, our mental framework of, of who this figure is and, and is in a way kind of a, a little more humanizing, gives us a little different spin, a little different context. It's obviously a very, you know, Latin Italian name. Wh whoever or whatever context we might have for a figure like Saint Bonaventure is is kind of reframed a little bit and, and we get a little different context of this person, this human with a particular history born in, in Tuscany. He recounts one of the stories we do have from his early life is that as a young boy, he became deathly ill. And this is an, something we'll pick up on later too with Julian of Norwich. There seems to be this physical ailment, physical frailty, physical trial that some of the mystics undergo that has this transformational quality. But, um, uh, this was shortly after the death of Francis and little Giovanni, uh, the future St. Bonaventure, invokes praise to the, this figure of St. Francis, sort of this local saint, uh, as he experienced it, is saved from death through this the, the sort of intercession of Francis on his behalf. And so, in a way, in continuing and honoring that experience, he enters the Franciscan order. He studies at the University of Paris. And interestingly, one of the kind of historical coincidences, he's at the University of Paris at the same time as, as the Dominican and sort of that theological mammoth of, uh, of the medieval period, Thomas Aquinas. And so the two are not just contemporaries, but fellow students. And he studies under the, the Franciscan Alexander of Hales, or Alexander Halle. And he shapes and influences his, his theology and his, his experiences going forward. So, like we said, it's still this 13th century. You get much of that, that same social context as, as Mechtild of Magdeburg and... Uh, Francis of Assisi. And there's this urbanization taking place, this consolidation of wealth, the rise of this merchant class. And 
also the rise of a middle class as a result of that. So there's a rise in literacy. People are reading now more widely and, and there's, there are these urban centers of, of learning and exchange as a result of that. With the Franciscans, as we've seen, there, there is this radical challenge to the status quo of, of materialism and, and ascending the social ladder through individual effort. Of, of status acquisition and they respond to that with this call to simplicity a call to poverty a call to service a call to sacrifice and so bonaventure is is very much in that lineage as a franciscan he joins that movement he's quickly identified as someone who, sh who should engage in advanced study and learning is sent to paris uh, to, to study there, is along with Aquinas, as we mentioned, considered one of the scholastics. So a real quick note on, on what that means for some amount of context of, of sort of the scholastic method. It is this systematic scholarly approach, and it argues a point of view through, through uh, the following. It presents one side of the argument, invokes appropriate authorities to support that side of the argument, then presents the opposite argument and, present, and, and invokes authorities to support that side of the argument, and finally presents the own point of view in summary. It's very much this sort of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, method of argumentation and scholarship who would have been the authorities that, that the scholastics would have drawn upon? Augustine, Anselm, earlier figures, uh, in some cases Dionysius, still at, at this time, certainly the Bible, uh, early uh, church scholars, Aristotle to a degree as well. So, and, and yet in, in some ways, some of this is being disputed, um, argued in, in the uh, halls of scholarship like University of Paris. St. Bonaventure already, as uh, from the brief outline I've given, we get a, a sense of contrast with the life of Francis, who was practical, who was local, who was dedicated to service. And we have this, instead, this intellectual figure who enters the university alongside some of the great minds of his time and is thinking through these, these issues. It's interesting to have so quickly, out of the Franciscan order, this figure who lends some intellectual heft, some intellectual weight, and is very meticulously and carefully applying this scholastic method to some of the theological issues of the time, specifically around the, this Franciscan order, such as the, the, the mendicant nature of their order who would not be bound in a local monastery or in, in singular, you know, a cloistered community, but in going out and serving the, the people of their, their given area. So one figure that Bonaventure goes back to quite a bit is the authority of Augustine. He, he's, he's basically seen as this Franciscan intellectual, in a sense, the first Franciscan intellectual. Whereas Francis is the lover 
Bonaventure we can roughly categorize as this unitive, where Francis is that active mendicant preacher. Bonaventure is someone who, who intellectualizes the Franciscans. And one, one interesting feature of his work is that as much as he invokes Augustine as a source of authority, he does break with Augustine on a particular point, which is the Trinity. He goes back to instead uh, Richard of St. Victor and Dionysius, which situates him in our sort of mystical tradition a little more squarely, a little more linearly. Specifically, what it is that he picks up on from Richard of St. Victor is this notion of condilection as opposed to dilection, as the shared love of the third as being the dominant and primary characteristic of the nature of the Trinity. The Father and the Son's shared love of the Holy Spirit, where Augustine saw the Holy Spirit as the love exchanged between the Father and the Son. And his notion of dilection is part of that understanding. So Bonaventure graduates and he's elected to the minister general of the Franciscans, one of this high honor in their order. A lot of his early career is spent in disputes between mendicants and seculars. And, and he's able to, through his argumentation, through his, through his diplomatic gifts, is able to defend his order. Kind of an interesting side note is that uh, Bonaventure is selected to be the Archbishop of York and to travel to England, but he resigns the position before ever being installed. This is in 1266. And uh, I just find it interesting that we might have this figure who would be a little more integrated into the that sort of English-speaking lineage, but for a kind of last-minute reversal. So some of Bonaventure's teachings. Bonaventure taught that God must be self-sacrificial by definition in this overflowing, generous love. And there you get already this Franciscan emphasis on God's abundance and God's generosity and the outpouring of love. Because inherently the greatest good wouldn't be to hoard or keep to itself. And since God is entirely good, uh, it must, by definition, the Godhead be self-sacrificial in, in giving some of its grace, power, love, sharing with, with humanity. This idea of God as a beneficent father is so much uh, a part of the sort of the, the, the weft of, of Franciscan teaching and practice. Since they, in joining the Franciscans, you give up everything. It's a radical acceptance of a lifestyle of poverty to the point of begging for your daily bread. And in so doing, the Franciscan is entrusting themselves entirely to, to the goodness and benevolence and grace of God. And so we, we discussed this idea of him, him picking up the Trinitarian notion of, of Richard of St. Victor's, this condilection, this mutual love of a third. But there's a further implication to, to adopting that notion. And that is that the Son receives fully the mind of God in that love exchange. 
And is, in a way, the, the Son is then a perfect reflection of the Father. The mind of the Son, therefore, contains an idea of all things. The, the infinite possibility, the potential energy from which all creation arises. And so the Son, in a way, gives it form. He is the, the, uh, creates the properties of existence out of these ideas. And so here, Bonaventure situates himself in that platonic lineage. In a sense, a perfect God contains all the, the ideal forms, the perfection. And then in his mirroring to the sun, those ideas are uh, given form, existence, corporeal frame, in a sense. As a result of that, the Franciscan account of, of the nature of reality is that all creation is an aspect of perfect divine love, regardless of how lowly that aspect of creation, it's a part of this greater whole that is an outflowing of the divine love. And in that sense, all things have their place in God. And so, whereas today we make those distinctions of what is sort of the realm or, or aspect of, of science and scientific study, what might be philosophical questions, and then we have uh, theology over here as a separate sort of discipline or area of study. You know, obviously in, in their day, in, in this medieval period, with people like Aquinas, Bonaventure, the entire created order has to be situated within the context of theology. And, and, and this is part of what Bonaventure's project would have been. Bonaventure's major work, in, in, that is especially relevant to us on, in this course on the Christian mystics, is the mind's journey into God. Already there we have some terms to look at. In, in a sense, the mind, the intellect, is a little more broadly considered than it might be as we understand it. We sort of automatically, intuitively make that division between kind of body, mind, soul, spirit. Whereas that term mind is a little more broadly construed for Bonaventure and kind of includes the subcategories of soul or spirit. Whereas God is kind of considered this supreme intelligence, kind of uh, mind being a more all-encompassing term of, of the inmost person. And so uh, a term that becomes kind of relevant for later spiritual directors, spiritual seekers, is this idea of the soul's journey home to God. And so this is kind of Bonaventure's early germ, early version of that process. And so uh, the story goes that 33 years after the death of St. Francis, Bonaventure travels up Mount Alverna to meditate and, and find some kind of spiritual peace in the very place where Francis had had his vision of the seraph with the six wings and where he received the stigmata. 
and has this sort of radical manifestation experience that seems to kind of confirm uh, the path he's on and give him a sense of unity and connection to Christ and Christ's suffering and wounds. And so while there, Bonaventure claims to have been granted the same vision. And so in his writing, The Mind's Journey to God, he unpacks that vision of the seraph, this highest of angels with the six wings. And according to Bonaventure, the six wings signify the six stages of spiritual illumination through which the soul ascends on its journey to God. And so he, in so doing, he roughly follows Augustine's move from the external to the internal as this spiritual ascent. And how Bonaventure divides up this process, he divides the wings into pairs. So he's got six pairs of wings, and each of them kind of has their, their corresponding function and role within that, that subset or pairs. So the first pair of wings symbolizes the soul's reflection of sense perception, the sensible corporeal world, uh, which he calls vestiges or footprints of God. Remember, creation, all of creation itself is this manifestation through the Son of the perfect mind of God. So uh, because of that, everything that we see, everything that we can perceive, all touch, all sound, all taste, smell, is a in a sense, a footprint of God. And the first wing in this pair refers to signs of God in the subhuman world, meaning plant life, animal life, you know, vegetable, mineral life. And here we, we get a, a sense of this sort of the great chain of being, if you're familiar, building on the sort of Aristotelian notion of the world. Here in Bonaventure, we get that kind of Christian Aristotelian marriage where he is kind of unpacking soul's journey to God as, as part of the, the, this worldview prevalent in the medieval period. So that first wing is God in the, in the subhuman world and that we have a sense of God's footprints through reflecting on that. And then the second is there are signs of God that we perceive in the human world of um, relationship and uh, interaction uh, community. And that is our outward experience of the footprints of God. And then there's this reflection on the mind in the second pair of wings. Uh, the mind, its powers, its ability to perceive, to kind of co-construct a reality, to, to receive the, the impressions of these vestiges of God in the sensible world. But also the mind's ability to reason, to go through this rigorous linear process of arriving at truth through the application of reason. The intellectual creature of the human is, in that sense, the image and likeness of, of God. And one of the wings is the use of the mind for theoretical knowledge, and the other wing is the use of the mind for practical knowledge and learning. So already we've got sort of four of the six wings, two in the outward world, 
subhuman and human world, and then theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge. Finally, the, the last pair of wings is a reflection on God's essence, sort of a, the spiritual reality. And in one, we perceive God's divine nature through reason. And in the other wing, we perceive through faith the divine persons of the Trinity. And finally, in, in the last section of this work, the, the Mind's Journey to God, Bonifacio reflects on the mental and mystical transport found in mystical experiences. So if we think of this metaphor of the six wings of the seraph as a kind of ladder of ascent, the highest rung he reserves for mystical experience. First is outer experience, then inner experience, then this transcendent mystical experience. So first we see God in and through the body, then the mind, the world of ideas, and finally through the spirit, and then eventually through this pure being. And there are seven chapters in this work, so the first six corresponding to the six wings, and then the final chapter treats that mystical union with God once the soul has moved through and been perfected by those first six stages. And for Bonaventure, we're only able to undertake this journey through humble and devout prayer. That is kind of the, the oar stroke that moves us along on the journey, is that consistent, devout, and humble prayer life. And just as he receives this vision on the mountain after seeking God diligently, prayer, it, so too do others experience God through diligent prayer. So like many other of the mystics, that, that's his kind of key to the whole process. And in the work, he compares God to an artist. And just as we know the artist through his art, so we know God through his creation. And this is really the first stage of the journey this, this, this way of the mind into God. And then we turn our minds toward the first principle. What is, what is spiritual? What is eternal? Transcends that sort of sensible reality. And then there's a contemplative ascent to God involving this integration of body, mind, and spirit. The sort of physical and mental limitations we have as human. And so here's a quote from Bonaventure's work. None can be blessed unless he ascend above himself, not by the ascent of his body, but by that of his heart. But we cannot be raised above ourselves except by a higher power raising us up. And so again, like with so many of the mystics, we have this paradox of our effort to ascend and yet being subject to God's grace and his vocation, his calling, his action. So this, there's this sense of climbing uh, up, up the mountain, kind of like him, him climbing up and then receiving, receiving the vision. He kind of applies that through these, this metaphor of the six wings. We have to direct our will to go through these stages of ascent and perfection. And that is kind of what's required of us to become worthy vessels uh, to receive 
the transcendent divine grace of this final contemplative mystical move. And then another quote from the piece. This is the peace proclaimed and given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ and preached again and again by our Father Francis. At the beginning and end of every sermon, he announced peace. In every greeting, he wished for peace. In every contemplation, he sighed for ecstatic peace. And then, to get a flavor of Bonaventure's mystical writing. Therefore, with these six considerations having run out as the six steps of the throne of the true Solomon, by which one arrives at peace, where the true pacifier rests in a pacifying mind, as if in the interior of Jerusalem, as if also by six wings of the cherub, by which the mind of the true contemplative is able to be driven above by a full brightening of supernal wisdom, as if also on the first six days in which the mind has to be exercised, to arrive at last to the Sabbath of quiet, after which our mind has surveyed God outside of himself through vestiges and in vestiges, within himself through image and in image, above himself through a similitude of the divine light glittering above us, and in that light itself, according to that which is possible, according to the state of the way and the exercise of our mind, when one arrives so far on the sixth step to this, that in the first and most high principle and the mediator of God and men, Jesus Christ, one gazes upon those things, the like of which can in no wise be discovered among creatures, and which exceed every perspicacity of the human intellect, it follows that this mind, by gazing, transcends and passes over not only this sensible world, but also its very self, in which transit Christ is the way and the gate. Christ is the stair and the vehicle, as the propitiary located above the ark of God and the sacrament hidden from the ages. So here we get through a little bit obscure language, a little lofty, but we get a sense of him invoking wisdom, the nature of Solomon, as the quality of the person that can undertake this journey through the six stages. We get a sense of God as ultimate peace represented in Sabbath rest. We get a sense of his use of the metaphor of the week as the, the, each day representing one of the six stages that we move through in finally resting in, in Sabbath rest, which he compares to the, the experience of the contemplative or mystic in that final seventh stage, and also invoking Christ through whom and in whom all of that is made possible. If one be perfect, it is proper that all intellectual activities be relinquished, and the whole apex of affection be transferred and transformed into God. However, this is mystical and most secret because no one knows it except him who accepts it. Nor does he accept it unless he be one who desires it. Nor does he desire it unless he be one whom the fire of the Holy Spirit, which Christ sent upon earth, inflames to the marrow of his bones. 
And for that reason, the apostle says that this mystical wisdom has been revealed by the Holy Spirit. And so there again, we get this um, sense of, of the requirements of undergoing this mystical uh, trajectory and, and that the fact uh, that connects it with a lot of the other mystics is that it is something that transcends the intellect, that it has to be relinquished, as we'll find later in another of the mystics, a, a learned ignorance or a, a, a setting aside of the intellect and pursuits of reason and concept to have some direct experience of the divine. So some key takeaways from the life of and teaching of, of St. Bonaventure or jo, Giovanni di Fidanza. He was named as a seraphic doctor of the church. That's in part a, a sort of passing reference to his vision of the seraph with the six wings. But in any case, a doctor of the church, meaning one of the highest honors that can be bestowed upon a figure. And, and part of that is because of his intellectual legitimization of the Franciscan path. He lent that intellectual weight to the Franciscans uh, by drawing on Augustine, Anselm, and for our purposes, Richard of St. Victor, whose uh, Trinitarian theology was so formative for him. He was very much a unitive, mystical theologian in that entire trajectory of this movement of the mind to God through these six stages. We move into that final stage, and he used the term in the quote, that divine union as the purpose and goal of that spiritual ascent. And so in St. Bonaventure, we have this, this figure, on the one hand, committed to the, these ideals of the Franciscans, of simplicity, service, the, this mendicant order and lifestyle and, and poverty, and uh, preaching peace to the laity. And yet, uh, on the other hand, he's very much uh, a man of his day, alive to some of the theological debates, and very much uh, a man of the mind, evidenced by the title of his major work, The Mind's Journey to God. This concludes our course. To learn more, please visit our website at www.contemplativelight.com. We look forward to seeing you again soon.